from Kurtco Media. That film will go down in history, and the other films will be just put to one side compared to it because it's real. And Steve McQueen was a real star. The greatest gearhead movie of all time. And I'm not saying racing nut. To me, gearhead is beyond racing. The guys that talk about racing. This is the ultimate gearhead movie. It ended up being part of a pretty devastating period for him, as I said, in his personal and his business life. So there's a contradiction there that I find fascinating. Those were the voices of Derek Bell, Marshall Terrell, and Jay Gelati, our guests today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. Welcome to Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross, and I have some very special guests today. Together, we'll talk about and celebrate a golden anniversary. This program celebrates the 50th anniversary of arguably the most famous racing movie ever made. It's been 50 years since the premiere of Le Mans, starring Steve McQueen. Directed by Lee Katzen, written by Harry Kleiner, and, and with great music by Michelle Legrand, it's thrilling, authentic, and a deeply moving movie on so many levels. I never get tired of seeing it. My guests today are three people intimately familiar with the film, its star, the cars, and the race itself. Welcome Derek Bell, Marshall Terrell, and Jay Gelati. Derek Bell is one of the greatest sports and endurance racing drivers of all time. Five-time winner of the 24 Hours of Le Mans, three-time winner of the 24 Hours of Daytona, Derek's driven for Ferrari, the John Wire Gulf Racing Team, Renault, and Alfa Romeo. But he's best known for his long and successful tenure with Porsche. Derek was one of the drivers hired by Solar Productions to work on the filming of Le Mans with Steve McQueen. Marshall Terrell is a veteran journalist and the author of 25 books, of which six are about the life and career of Steve McQueen, including uh, books like uh, Steve McQueen, Le Mans, and the Rearview Mirror, and his newest book, just published by Dalton Watson, Steve McQueen, In His Own Words. Finally, author, musician, and songwriter Jay Gelati, he's no stranger to Cars That Matter, and he's the fellow who orchestrated today's program. A lifelong fan of Porsche and Steve McQueen, his definitive book, Golf 917, is the result of more than three decades researching and gathering information on the Porsche 917, the golden age of sports car racing, and the work of John Wire's JW Automotive Engineering. Welcome, gentlemen. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks. So let's kick it off. Derek, as the five-time Le Mans winner, you are uniquely qualified to talk about the world's most legendary race and the film in which you had a driving role. But to set the stage, can you tell us about racing in the real 1970 Le Mans for the Ferrari factory team and the 512S? All these things are wonderful to talk about. The trouble is, where does one start? because I'd never driven a sports car in my life until 1970. I'd driven for Mr. Ferrari in Formula 2 and Formula 1 in 68 and 69, on and off. But in the middle of 69, they pulled out of motor racing because the cars were uncompetitive, which has never been done since, because Ferrari pulling out of Formula 1 is pretty major. Anyway, sad for me because my career really started in a big way in 68 when I had Colin Chapman of Lotus, John Cooper of Cooper, and I had John Wire of the GT40 era and Enzo Ferrari's team asking me to drive for them in the middle of mid-May to June. And all this was happening to this young kid off a farm in Sussex. So suddenly it all happened. I did my spell at Ferrari 
which I'd never have missed for anything in the world. And then my world was really open. Who was this kid? He came in, went out as quickly as he came in. And fortunately, a gentleman called Jack Swatters, who owned Garage Francochon, was the importer of Ferraris into Belgium, who I'd met during my time at Ferrari. He invited me to drive for him at Spa in the 1,000-kilometer race. We did rather well. And after that race, although we had three fires in the pit lane, when the, as I started the engine each time, it sort of caught it alight, which meant it quite interesting. From then on, we finished about seventh. But Mr. Ferrari sort of said, hold on, I want this guy back for Le Mans. So that was really how that came about. And Jack, eventually I flew into Brussels to see him on my way to a Formula 2 race. He said, you've got to drive for Ferrari. I said, to hell with it, Jack. He didn't ruin my career, but he didn't enhance it much at that time. And he said, you've got to. I said, why? He said, because if I don't let you go and drive for Ferrari, he said, I'll get no spare parts for the race. So that was the end of that. So I said, OK, I'll drive for the old man. So that's how I came to drive at Le Mans. With Ronnie Peterson, a fantastic driver. The engine blew up after about four or five hours when we were lying in the top seven or eight. That was the end of my first Le Mans. And from that, Jack Swatters was invited to give his, or not invited, actually asked, if he would loan solar productions his yellow Ferrari, which, as I say, I didn't drive at Le Mans, but it was there, as I say, with the other drivers I drove at the factory and the red car. So they painted Jack's car red, and that car I actually was basically drove through the whole of the movie because it was his car and he wanted me to drive it wherever possible because he trusted me. And uh, that was what it was. But on many occasions, I, of course, I drove the Porsche 917 that Steve McQueen was in because Steve couldn't do some of the, or they didn't want Steve, Steve would have done them, but they didn't want Steve involved in some of the, the incidents we were having. So that was really how I got involved basically with doing the Le Mans movie and my first race at Le Mans. What an incredible story. About that story, Le Mans, the film, Marshall, you're the acknowledged biographer of Steve McQueen and, and really the guy who's kind of turned over every rock about McQueen and his life, both on and off the screen. Can you tell us about the gestation of the film, Le Mans, and how it came to be? Sure. He had been wanting to do Le Mans since 1959, and specifically, he wanted Bridget Bardot to be his co-star. And I found that out just through a little clip in Variety. He announced his movie production company and Le Mans was going to be the actual first movie that he wanted to make under his banner. But as it turned out, as he said, he did not, quote, have the juice to make the movie until 1970. And that was after, you know, a series of hits, The Great Escape, Sam Pebbles, Thomas Crown Affair, Bullet. And it was only then that he could actually get this movie made. However, he was going to do another movie called Day of the Champion before this, which was going to be on Grand Prix. Of course, the movie Grand Prix had beat him to the punch. That's sort of how that all started. It was a magical time, I guess. In many ways, it's very fortuitous that it took him until 1970 to make the film. I'd like to ask Jay, who, by the way, when I think of the Golf 917 cars, I think of you as kind of Mr. Golf 917. There seems to be a kind of a fortunate synchronism of the timing of the film being made and the dominance of Porsche's 917 and the Golf sponsorship. Could that have been made with any other cars? What have you got to say about that? Well, I'm certainly happy the timing worked out the way it did. I often wonder if the fascination with the 917 would be anywhere near the same if it weren't for the timing of this movie. If Steve's schedule had worked out such that he could have made this movie a couple of years earlier or a couple of years later, we'd have a very different film on our hands. And I wonder if the obsession and interest of the 917 would be there. And of course, the 917 in golf colors is even more iconic. 
because in large part of this film, I was thinking also the fact that it rained so much at Le Mans in 1970. If they'd uh, made this movie in 1971 where it was sunny and warm the whole race, you'd have a very different movie on your hands. So I'm really glad, selfishly now, that the timing worked out the way it did. And who knows, if the timing had been different, I might not even be here having this conversation. (laughs) Well, it certainly was an aligning of the stars, literally and figuratively speaking. Yeah. Derek, what was it like on the set, driving for the cameras? I mean, there was nothing to win, per se at least when you were making the movie, did it mess with your psyche? What was it like? No, we as drivers actually were natural actors. If somebody said, put your helmet on and get in the car, we would get in the car the way that we did for a race. If somebody was wearing Steve's helmet, they would assume it was Steve. But the fact it could have been Steve, because by then he knew he'd studied enough racing. But the actor I drove for, I could have easily walked to the car and got in without him having to ask me how to walk to the car and get in and which way would you open the door. And so they saved a lot of time. And John Sturdy said, I wish we could have used you guys. It didn't matter, but it was a nice feeling. It showed that we were contributing quite a lot towards the actual genuineness of the movie. In a genuine film, it turned out to be. But it's also legendary for a lot of minute details regarding its creation. That's why it's fascinating hearing these stories from you, Derek. Marshall, can you comment on that? I hear that so many things went wrong during production. There was no script per se. What about that is true? Well, all I can tell you is from the conversations that I had with Robert Raillier, who was McQueen's partner at Solar, that was the complaint, is that the movie had no script. By that, I mean it had no storyline. And that was always going to be the main complaint, and that was the main complaint from Sturgis. But Sturgis, from what Raillier told me, had this habit of... He didn't really care about that necessarily because on The Great Escape, they showed up with a script and he said, poor John Sturgis, what he would do was take apart a script, deconstruct it again. He goes, it worked on The Great Escape, but it didn't work on Le Mans. And I also think there might have been, on Steve's part, some, I'm going to leave it as vague as possible because he wanted really, in his words, to make a pseudo documentary. And he wanted to try and bend reality with movie making. And it was a first attempt that I know of in film to do both of that. He would film it the way that he wanted to film it. He might have even given the uh, movie studio a different script while he was going to shoot something else. That wasn't past Steve McQueen to do. What Steve always said was, this movie's in my head. That always worried the movie executives. We'll take a short break, but we will be right back. best travel experiences are more than just vacations. They shape who we are, and they bring us closer to the people and places we love. This is the magic of travel. I'm Bruce Wallen, and in my 20 plus years as an editor and writer, I've covered the world's most extraordinary travel experiences for places like Rob Report, National Geographic, and Departures, and I've met some incredible people along the way. The people who make that magic happen. For the first time, I'm inviting you to join me in a little-known world of luxury travel innovators, connoisseurs, and tastemakers, an exclusive group of industry leaders with a passion for the very best of travel. With every episode of Travel That Matters, you'll get access to insider knowledge, secret getaways, unforgettable luxury hotels, and one-of-a-kind travel experiences to expand what you thought was possible. Like venturing into the jungle and coming face-to-face with rare wildlife. 
the experience that we had lives it within my heart. I don't think I'll ever leave those incredible moments, those gentle giants all around us. We're paying for an extravagant vacation and having no idea what you're in for. They never know where they're going. It almost doesn't matter, you know, whether you take people to Jungle Desert Mountain. It's what happens when you're there that's important. Set off for adventure every other week with Travel That Matters. Each episode is packed with stories to get you dreaming about your next trip and expert advice to help make it happen. Open the door to extraordinary experiences where every minute carries meaning and every moment brims with wonder. The power of travel is huge. It changes people's lives. This is why we travel. This is Travel That Matters. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Talking about Steve, what was Steve like as a person, Derek? For me, I was in awe because he was this fantastic superstar that had just done The Great Escape. I'm not sure if I'd seen this at this point. And I subsequently saw all the films, the movies he ever made. And I got to know him so well, we ended up spending the last four weeks of the movie sharing a house together with his family, with Neil and the children, and me with my children and wife Pam at that time. I just got to know him incredibly. We hit it off so well. And the reason was, was that Steve wanted to be a racing driver. We did not want to be film stars. And that was the big difference. We were happy doing what we did. Steve made the film for whatever reason, and correctly, I'm sure Marshall was right about how Steve's philosophy about it, but he, Steve just wanted to drive at Le Mans. As far as I know, the insurance people wouldn't let him do it in the end, and rightly so, probably. They would have got some pretty genuine footage, that's for sure. He just loved me with us. A lot of sitting around being done while they were checking on what they were doing next. There seemed a lot of repetitive stuff too. But of course, you're on a track that's eight miles round and we were using a three-mile section at any one time. It all had to be shut down for us to do it. I can't believe the French allowed it to happen. We would go to do something and Steve would always come to sit with us. Wherever we were, he'd make a point of coming up on his push bike or on his motorbike, whatever it was, just to chat. He loved to be with us and listen to all the tales, which is really what I thought he wanted, was to make the film as genuine as he could regarding the racing at Le Mans and what it was like. And I thought all of that was really, really good. And the whole thing to me, even in spite of we just saw Ford versus Ferrari, the footage in that film Le Mans was much more genuine than the footage that they had in the film Ford versus Ferrari. But Steve, he just had a passion for it. And at weekends, we'd jump on the motorbikes. I mean, did you ever hear the story about the motocross bike? Please tell. Okay, one day we were doing a shot through the White House. We were doing this shot and there was dear old Joe Sipper, who I'd only just met that year because I'd only just, to say, basically arrived in the top level, as it were. And Joe was driving 1917. And then I would be at the front in the Ferrari 512 and Steve would be in the middle. And I'll never forget it. We were coming up to the White House, which you came up at 150 miles an hour. You'd go down a gift, go through the right and go through the left and then through the right sort of kink as you came out. And as we came through there, we were always backing off to make it safer. When it came to take 17, I decided I was going to go faster. I was bored to tears with this going at 90%. So we took it at 100%. Me in front, Steve behind, and Sipper behind that. And I just came up and instead of backing off, just went flat through it. And Steve kind of followed. 
And then Joe followed him, obviously, because he had the ability. We got to the forge, he came, turned around, and Steve got out as white as a sheep. He said, you bastards, he said, fancy doing that to me. And John Sturgis was there, he said, what's wrong? He said, these stupid devils, he said, took me flat out through the White House. John looked at me, and he said, so what? why do you do that? He, I said, he didn't have to follow us. He could have backed off. But Steve, being Steve, didn't back off. And he said to me, I'll get my own back. So a month later, there we are, staying all weekend, and we met socially. He said, come, let's go riding out on the bikes. He got on his Husky 400, and I got on this 250. I'm hardly ever ridden an off-road bike. We went out in the sand dunes, and we're playing around in the middle of the mile track there. And Steve went off, he said, hold on a minute. And he saw this great big, big mound of sand. I mean, maybe 40 foot high, like, you know, part of a quarry. And he went riding up the way he rode. He stood up on the pegs and up he went up to the top and then disappeared the other side. And then he came back around to the top. And he stood on the top on his bike, feet out the side. He said, come on, it's fabulous. Have a ride. So he said, you should go back a bit because you've only got a 200. So I went back a few sort of 100 yards, came flying and up the hill. As I came up past him, there was no set. There was just a big hole. And I took off and below me was all the garbage for the whole of Le Mans. And I was in this in a garbage tip. And I thought, this is a good time not to fall off and show how good you are. And I wasn't good, but I stayed on the pegs and somehow got through it. And I spun it round afterwards. And Steve just looked up at me and he just howled with laughter. He said, I got you back. So, you know, that was him. And that was the sort of person he was. And we went through the whole film having those sort of moments. So we felt very close to him as a person. And I could tell you stories that went on forever. I mean, I saw him in Hollywood later on and things like that. He was great. That is a fantastic story. Obviously, he was an A-list actor. How did he rate as a driver, in your estimation? At the time, we thought he was pretty good. But when I reflect on having been in racing for another 40 years after we made the movie, I realized that he was actually damn good. I knew he'd raced at Sebring with Peter Revson that year, but I didn't know he'd driven Austin Healy's and other cars over the years until I read his various books. He was very, very good. To my knowledge, he never had an incident. Now, somebody said he did wreck a Porsche. But I'm sure we would have heard about it as we were on the film for like four months. And somebody said, Steve, took that car into it, wrapped it up into a ball last night. Plus, if he'd had a wreck, he would have got very hurt because you got hurt in those cars. There was no safety features to them. I look back now and I reflect and think that he was just jumping in a 917 and driving it the way he did. And I'd never driven a 917 until that year either, but I'd driven the 512. And I was pretty able. I'd done Formula One. So I knew I was capable. And I didn't really realize what it took to drive one of those cars fast. And then to have me and Siffert around him driving fast through the corners. We never took it on the limit with him, but we were always close to it because we got bored. We said, we've got to make this real and genuine. Let me ask you this, Jay. What are the parallels to reality in the story that made it to the screen? Are there some points of confluence? I know that Derek was talking about that. What's your take on it? Yeah, there's actually a large number of what I called in my book parallels to reality in the script or in the story, such as it is. To people who aren't as knowledgeable, it might seem like Hollywood, but really that's not the case. The ending of the film, which shows a very closely contested finish among three cars, basically that's what happened the year before in 69. It was two cars. It was the GT40 against Porsche 908. That was the closest contested finish ever at Le Mans. So that had just happened the year before. So nothing really Hollywood about putting that in the story. 
the little subplot about a driver promising his wife that he'll retire if he wins the race. That's completely based on Hans Hermann, who actually did that. He won the race with Richard Atwood in 1970 and retired from racing because he had sort of promised his wife casually (laughs) that he would do that. So you have that one. There's the driver substitution thing where late in the race, they put Steve back in one of the other team cars. And that happened at Sebring in 1970 with the Ferrari team. They moved Mario Andretti to a different car in the Ferrari team, and they ended up winning the race. Where, of course, Steve and Peter Revson finished second in that race, just like he finishes second in the movie. So there's a whole number of these big and little parallels. And even the famous quote about racing is life, there's some question about where that quote actually originated from. I think most of my sources seem to indicate that that quote goes back to Maurice Trintignant, who won Le Mans in 1954. But similar quotes have been attributed to folks like Jim Clark and even as far back as Bernd Rosemeyer in the 1930s. Supposedly, there are variations of that racing his life quote. So a lot of stuff in the movie that is based in reality. And that makes sense because Steve really wanted the most realistic film he could possibly make. In terms of realism, and obviously your role in in the filmmaking itself, Derek, what about some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff that happened, like the 512 catching on fire during the filming? I'd love to hear more about that. So Steve and I, he's in the 917, and I'm in the Ferrari. We have to overtake the GT40 camera car going down into Indianapolis. So we've come down from the end of Mulzahn through the tight corner, Mulzahn corner, accelerating out and Steve basically behind me. We go through all the corners, we get down to the port chicane, turn around and speak to John Sturgis, I think it still was, on the radio. And he says, okay, come back now, because they didn't want us to turn around and fly back up the three miles in case there was somebody coming down in a safety car or something. At that point, Steve's next to me. So he says, come on, let's go flat out. And I thought, okay, this is Steve. I said, actually, Steve, I can't get it into gear, the clutch. I've lost my clutch pressure. So he says, okay. He said, I'm going to carry on. So he storms off flat out up the road. I keep trying to turn the engine over, just yank it into gear. And as I accelerate out of there, suddenly I'm all on my own because I'm not going that fast, probably 70 mile an hour, 80 mile an hour. Suddenly there's an explosion in the cockpit and these flames just come out from the floor beside me and hit me in the face. And of course, we had open face helmets with just a bandana across under our nose with goggles on or glasses. Hence, we used to get burned. So I stopped my car, but it's astonishing. It takes a heck of a time to stop a car, even at 70 miles an hour, because it doesn't have a handbrake. So every time you think, well, I've stopped now, and you realize, hold on, I'm still doing 20 miles an hour. And you have to stop it to get out. So eventually, I got it to stop. Meanwhile, of course, the flames are coming up on the, in the cockpit. And I didn't know I was burned. I was just in a hurry to get out. And literally, I stepped out. And as I stepped out, the air hit me. And I remember, God, man, the whole of the left of my face was like red hot. As I got out, oh, my goodness, through the forest comes this person, a local. I said, get a fire truck. And at the same time, and the car's roaring away now, the fire truck took an age to come. And then the ambulance came down, and it was the old Renault ambulance that you see on the movie. And Sister Bridget, bless her heart, was on the film with her glasses. She comes out, drop your trousers, she said, and she gave me a jab in the backside, I guess, in case I had shock and stuff like that. And then she says, get in then, she said in Irish. She said, lie down on the bed. So I lay down on the stretcher inside the ambulance. She hits on the door and she goes, drive on. And the driver let the clutch out. And I promise you this without a word of a lie. The stretcher 
it was came out and it came literally straight back out kicked the back doors up with my feet as i went out and it cantilevered over the track over the road with me holding on behind him so it didn't drop me on the ground and of course the driver hears this bang going on behind so he puts the brakes on without a word of a lie he shot back inside again Anyway, that was the beginning, quite amusing. Then we got to hospital, of course, because it was lunchtime. The French don't do much at lunchtime. So I was laid on the floor. They sort of came along and slapped a whole load of cream on my face and said, we'll be back after we've had lunch. And Steve came to see me and they were considering flying me up to Paris to a you know, special burns hospital, but they didn't need to. And actually, I went to race the next weekend in Sicily. The fact that Sister Bridget was not only in the film, but she actually attended to you in real life. Can't make this stuff up. No, thank goodness she was there. But it's a true story, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that incredible tidbit. That really is something. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Jay, let me ask you a question. As the the Porsche guru and a guy who kind of lives, breathes, eats, and sleeps Porsche, how has Le Mans, the film, affected uh, Porsche from a brand-building perspective? I mean, in the ensuing 50 years since the film was made. Well, Robert, I don't think we can calculate it. It's something that I think you know better than I do. In your business, in your experience, the PR and advertising benefit of the 917 program itself, and then you combine it with this film that has become so widely known and so widely followed, you know, it has to be worth something in the millions of dollars still to this day, maybe every year to Porsche, just the exposure that it gets. You know, at the time, I'm sure no one was necessarily thinking about that, although Porsche clearly believed strongly that their racing program was their advertising program because they did very little conventional advertising. It's a huge thing for Porsche. It just continues on and on. Here we are 50 years later. We're still talking about it. We're doing things like going to see some of the cars uh, later this summer at Pebble Beach, which will be a fantastic event, and we'll probably break the internet. It sounds like the film was actually kind of a testbed for a burgeoning industry. I want to ask you, Marshall, you know, I watched the film and it's really a watch lover's dream. I, I noticed Derek is wearing a, a tag Hoyer Monaco, and that was part of the allure of the film were these great little details. Marshall, I guess there's a guy named Don Nunley who passed away. He was the prop master of Le Mans. What can you tell us about him and his product placement business? Well, it's interesting because that was the really the first time, I wouldn't say the product placement was used in a film, but heavily used. McQueen, if I'm not mistaken, he wanted to look like Joe Siffert. He had a choice of watches and he said, I want to look like Joe. And so Joe was wearing the tag hewer. Don made a deal with the president of the tag hewer. I know one of them that he gave to Hague Altunian, the mechanic. I think he probably kept one or two for himself because Chad, I know, has one. Don, I think, perhaps kept two. He might have sold a couple of those. I got a watch from Steve. You got one of those as well. He offered me the Tag Hoy. But in 1970, even for a, a sort of up-to-date race drive, it was a bit in your face because it was dead square and not really the most attractive watch. So Steve said, I'd love to give you a watch. So we went along to see Don, and he got me an, a round one, which is the Ortavia. 50 years ago. Subsequently, I had it cleaned at some point. I had it back and I mislaid it. How the hell I could mislay it? On the back, it had to Derek from Steve. 
I've always regretted losing that. And lo and behold, four years ago, this watch arrived in a box. I opened the box up. There was this Hoyer. And on the back, it says to Derek from Chad. And there was a note in there saying, I understand you lost the one my dad gave you. So it's very special to me. Wow. Lovely story, isn't it? Yeah. That's a million dollar gift. It was very special. I mean, you'd never sell it. (laughs) I wish I'd had the original. Robert, I have a funny story. So when I initially interviewed Hey Galtunian, this would have been in 1989 or 90. He had told me all the things that he had gone through with Le Mans. Steve gave him an engraved watch and said, thank you for saving my life. And I thought at the time, this was my thinking, like, Steve, you make millions of dollars. You got these watches for free. <laughs> you engrave it to him and give it to him. That's not much of a gift. Well, lo and behold, how many years later, Hag sells the watch. I think it sells for $2 million. I retracted my thought. I went, wow, Steve, you're a pretty generous guy. <laughs> yeah, if Steve only knew. <laughs> what a great story. And who could have thought that would be the case back so many years ago? I'd like to ask you, Derek, can you tell us about your relationship with him after the film was done and, and later on in life? I was invited by Porsche to drive with Jackie X at Le Mans. And so I went and drove with Jackie for the factory team and we won the race in 1981. Jackie and I won Le Mans two times in the Jules car and then the first time out in the 956. And then I won it another couple of times later on in 86 and 87. But it really made such a difference to obviously my career being involved with the movie at the start. But as far as knowing Steve's concerned, I kept my relationship up during that rather lally period. I'll never forget, we actually used to write letters because in those days there wasn't such a thing as the internet. And out of the blue, I got a letter from him one day asking how I was. And I never kept them. I was so bloody naive. And I thought, how fantastic. I mean, I told everybody Steve McQueen's written to me. Of course, he was really hot in those days. And he just said, what are you up to? be great to see you sometime. And I remember I was flying actually out to a race, I think, probably down at Riverside. I phoned up Steve and he said, let's go out to dinner. So we went out and had a lovely evening. He'd been married two or three weeks before. And we had a lovely dinner together. Again, keep in touch. Miss come out in the valley sometime and ride the bikes. Because you remember the previous times we'd had fun together. And that was it. We sort of kept in touch. But, you know, he was busy with his career. And, of course, I didn't realize how ill he was. And then, lo and behold, one day I walked into the office on the farm in England. The girl behind the desk reception said, we've just had a call from Solar Productions. So I went, my goodness me, that must be Steve. And I never thought of phoning him back because I didn't think, yeah, I thought you'll phone again. And the next thing I already had died. So I didn't have any more communication, sadly, with him than we had in those early days. But we did know each other and our families extremely well in the beginning. It was fabulous. Talking about Steve and his, his legacy, Marshall, let me ask you, as his biographer, how do you see this particular film? How do you see Le Mans in the larger context of Steve's body of work? I write mainly about his film and his filmography, and Le Mans is, it's hard to explain because to me, and I don't want to offend anyone here, it's more of a documentary than a film. I go around the world and I talk about Steve in Germany, in Japan, in Europe. They don't talk about his films. They talk about Le Mans. That's all they want to talk about. They don't even want to talk about Steve McQueen as a person. They want to talk about the making of Le Mans. And so I find it just this interesting, strange dichotomy. And I have to tell you this funny, funny story that you're only getting because I just recently discovered this about a year ago. So when Steve did this film, he made a deal with Gulf Oil. The deal with Gulf Oil was that he would get gas for life. He had a Gulf Oil credit card. And so, as you guys know, he gave up his salary in order for the film to go on, which was really an extraordinary move. 
when he moved to Malibu, he got away from everything, but he started collecting cars and motorcycles. And right across the street from him was a Gulf oil station. And he became very friendly. And he made actually that Gulf oil station his office. But he used that credit card every single day to fill up all of his cars. And he got free gas. And he didn't have just like 10 or 12 cars. He had like 54 cars. He had 100 motorcycles. And the owner of the station told me every single day he came up and he filled a car or he filled a bike. So <laughs> Le Mans was the gift that kept on giving to him. What, a, what an incredible story. That is really, <laughs> really fantastic. I have a question for all of you. What do you see as the legacy of the film 50 years on? Derek? To me, it's a totally genuine story of motor racing in that era. It's really a fantastic sort of piece of history. You watch it and you're getting a true view of what it was like at Le Mans in 1970, 71, and for a few years around that. It's not that different today. The cars are just different colors, different sponsors, but the track is much the same. The fans are just the same. I'm the Grand Marshal this year, for example. I was meant to be last year, but they didn't have it as such. And so I'll be back there probably driving a golf-sponsored 917 because there's still a couple left in England, which is amazing. And I'll lead the start round for a couple of laps before they go and start their race. I mean, Le Mans is Le Mans. That film will go down in history. And the other films will be just put to one side compared to it because it's real. And Steve McQueen was a real star. And now, with all due respect to James Garner, who I think was a fabulous actor, we never talk about the film Grand Prix. We only talk about the film Le Mans. And I think much the same will happen with Ford versus Ferrari. It's a lovely title, thank goodness. But I still think this Le Mans is so legitimate, and it's the story of a race. Now, as Marshall was saying just now, but there was never a script. And he was right. But how the hell can you make a script about a 24-hour race? Nothing happened apart from people race. This was the race of the race that took place in 1970. And the story is the Porsches versus Ferraris, et cetera, et cetera. That's what the film's about. The people, the story of Steve McQueen. But there was no story, the bit of romance. But it's really difficult. Even Steve tried hard. But there wasn't much romance during that movie, believe me, even when we were there for three months. You need your wife, your girlfriend to be with you. It's wonderful to have that person with you. You don't take your wife with you when you go to work. And so the story is about that damn car racing against Ferrari at the Lamar 24 hour, probably the greatest race in the history of motorsport. And that's what it's about. That's a fantastic capsule review. I love it. What do you think, Marshall? What's the film's legacy? I'm just going to give a simple summation. I'm going to call it the greatest gearhead movie of all time. And I'm not saying racing. Not. To me, gearhead is beyond racing. The guys that, that talk about racing. This is the ultimate gearhead movie. So that's the legacy. But I want to read you a quote from McQueen. And it talks about the racers, but it also talks about the intended audience. I think this will touch Derek. He says, some of these men are dealing with the unknown. That gives a man greatness. I'm making Le Mans so my grandmother in Montana knows, who knows nothing about cars, will understand. I love that quote. That was fantastic. Uh, the thing that I missed saying was that it'll never be forgotten because I do a lot of Concord Elegances, Goodwoods and Pebble Beaches and Laguna Sacres and Elkhart Lake Classics and Historics. I go up to the young people, okay? There's modern cars there, but generally they're classic cars from our era. I don't know what classic is and what historic is, but they're not this year's cars. Anything that's not racing right now. And I walked up to groups of kids because I'm intrigued. And I say, hold on a minute. Why are you here? 
And they say, well, my dad followed it for years. And when I was a kid, I used to come and watch the cars go around. And although he doesn't come as much as he used to, I come because I love it. I know the sponsors are worried about, what about the future? What about the dads that are going to pass away? There is a heck of a future for young people who have a passion for watching these cars. And that McQueen movie, I have to call it that, is really about that history. And they watch it and you talk to them and go, oh, that's fantastic. You, wherever I go, I hear, we watched the movie, the McQueen movie last night, because it's so real. And they can see that car at Goodwood, Pebble Beach, wherever it is, there'll be a 917 or a 512S or a car of that ilk. And it'll be there forever. I believe. I don't think it'll ever go away. And now they're bringing all this electric stuff. Who knows where we'll go with it? But those cars are part of that incredible era of motoring. What do you think, Jay? Well, I sort of have three words for the legacy. One is preservation. Derek and Marshall both touched on it in a way. The film preserves a glimpse into that classic era of motorsport. There's just no way to recreate it. And if we didn't have it, we would be so much the poorer for not having it. Second word is inspiration, which Derek just touched on. I mean, I'm a Le Mans kid. I remember seeing it for the first time when it was on television in the U.S. I would have been seven or eight years old. And if I hadn't seen this film at that age, at that time, again, who knows if I'd even be here talking to you guys. So I think it has inspired many, many people over these last 50 years in some way, shape or form to become interested in motorsport or Porsche or whatever it might be. And then the third one, not to end on a downer, but the third word that came to me on the legacy is devastation. And maybe we can get Marshall to comment on it a little bit too, but it was a devastating time for Steve and his personal and his business life. And it's just strange because he finally got to do this film that he really wanted and had a burning passion for. And yet the outcome, it ended up being part of a pretty devastating period for him, as I said, in his personal and his business life. So there's a contradiction there that I find fascinating. Sure. I'll want to ask Derek a question after I'm finished. As you know, this was a movie that Steve McQueen didn't want to do a whole lot of movies. This was one he definitely wanted to do. He had to be talked in the bullet. He had to be talked in to Thomas Crown. He had to be talked into a lot of movies. Le Mans was one that he didn't have to be talked into. He basically staked his whole future, whole fortune on Le Mans. So it, it came at a point where he wanted it his way or not at all. And as you know, there was a shutdown. He had to give up his salary. As it turned out, uh, financially, the film didn't do as well as Cinema Center had hoped. I think it did okay, but it did make back the money for him. So he had to shut down Solar Productions. It also culminated with the end of his relationship with his agent, the end of his relationship with his wife, the end of the relationship with his whole company. So all these things had a really devastating price. But my question to Derek is, did Steve show any of that pressure to you did you have any idea that any of that pressure was going on because i have the feeling that you know that steve compartmentalized a lot of his feelings it would be interesting to me to know if you saw any of that while this was going on all i remember after a certain number of weeks they said we're all having a week's holiday everybody can go for a week i went back to england and we'll let you know when to come back. And we went, oh, my goodness, what's happened now? Steve never spoke to me about it. It was amazing, actually. He never talked to me. But I didn't know him that well at that stage. Where I was just one of the drivers who contributed quite a lot and was used as the main driver with him. 
So we knew each other like that, but not socially. In fact, never really much socially at all until much later. Don Sturgis disappeared and we then came back. And Lee Katzen came in and he had a different sort of directing. That's the way I looked at it. And he wanted a bit more action. And I could see that, you know, maybe it needed it. But the fact, the outcome was, I think they, they made a heck of a film. But I knew nothing really that it was difficult. I mean, I never got the hint that it might not make the end of it. All I know, I believe I'm right, is Lee Katzen came in, CBS, I think, or something had come in and taken over. But we never really saw anybody because, as you say, Bob Relia was there the whole time. And he consistently just followed along, but, you know, working with Lee Katzen instead. And even at the end, when Steve and I shared the house together and, you know, we had some good times, he never really talked about it. He actually didn't bring his concerns to work as such, but was never dragged away in the middle of a, of a scene saying, come on, we've got to talk to you, Steve. There was never any panic, like, what the hell's happening here? There was nothing. We just carried on making the film because that's what everybody was there for. And it was almost as though Steve said, come hell or high water, we're going to make this film even if we haven't got the budget to do the way we might want to finish it. But I thought you would never tell it wasn't quite the same direction even. I think it was pretty damn consistent. Well, the result is certainly something that everybody can celebrate 50 years on, getting to talk about some of the secrets and some of the special parts of the story that most people aren't familiar with. It was a real uh, treat today. And obviously, you touch about on so much of that in your, your latest book, Steve McQueen, in his own words, Marshall. So that's going to be a great read for me when I have a chance to pick that up. Thank you for having us. Thanks to our guests today, Derek Bell, Marshall Terrell, and Jay Gelati. We're going to be taking a short break here on Cars That Matter, so be sure to get out on the road like me and enjoy the sunshine for the next few weeks. Be sure to like and subscribe to this program so you know the moment we release a new episode where we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Joey Salvia, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.